Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey everyone, join us on a trip to join the Hoosier cardio nerds in the beautiful state of Indiana. Today we get to discuss a phenomenal case with colleagues from Indiana University. With the release of this episode, we are so thrilled to invite the Indiana University Cardiology Fellowship to join the CardioNerds Healy Honor Roll, the list of programs who support our mission to democratize cardiovascular education. So we thank Dr. Deepak Bhakta and the rest of program leadership for joining us and elevating the platform, as well as for nominating Dr. Asad Tarabi to be the ambassador to represent their program. Friends, we thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardioters. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Speaker disclosures are available in the episode description. There is no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. Be sure to claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. And now, it's time to get nerdy. Cardio nerds, welcome back to another fabulous CNCR. Thanks for joining us for a great trip to Indianapolis as we're joined by our colleagues, fellows from Indiana University Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. We have with us Drs. Asad Tarabi, Sujoy Fuken, and Michelle Morris. Guys, I want to welcome you to the show, and I have to say I'm so excited for this discussion. My connection to Indiana University is when we stole Dr. Michael Emery from your program, and he's been just such a great addition, especially to our sports cardiology program. I'm already learning so much from him, but from everything he's told me about Indiana University, we're in for a real treat. So guys, go ahead and introduce yourselves to our audience. Hey guys, my name is Asad. I'm a first-year fellow here at IU. I've been a Hoosier my whole life, uh, trained here for uh, residency. I was here for medical school and, of course, stayed on for fellowship. Really interested in interventional cardiology and um, happy to be on the podcast with you guys. Hey, guys. Thanks for having us. Uh, my name is Sujoy Fukin. I'm one of the third-year cardiology fellows, also serving as one of the chief fellows here this year at Indiana. I'm originally from Muncie, Indiana, which is about one hour northeast of Indianapolis, but I went to med school in Albany, New York, and then I did residency in Atlanta at Emory University before returning home here at uh, Indiana, and I'll be staying on as one of the interventional fellows starting this July. Indianapolis is a great city. I love running along the canal and just trying out a lot of the restaurants with this great group of fellows we have here. Hey everyone, I'm Michelle Morris. Like I said, I'm also an IU lifer. I've done all my training at IU, including medical school and residency. I will be serving as one of the chief fellows next year and will also be staying on for an interventional year after that. Very happy to be here. Wow. Michelle, congrats on the chief position and welcome for coming. And Suja Asad, welcome as well. We're so excited to have you. Take us to your favorite place in Indiana and give us a, a lay of the land because we're excited to settle down and talk about some serious cardiology. All right. Well, Indianapolis is a great city. We're really glad to have you guys here. I think we'll take you to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. That's where the Indy 500 is every year. Really a fun event. And usually a lot of events are going along with that. There's uh, the Snake Pit, which is like a DJ music event there. And there's the bricks on the speedway where you kiss the bricks as you go around the track. So we'll take you there. Wow, that sounds super exciting. And I'm sure that our case is going to be as fast paced as the Indy 500 in front of us. Did you say there's a snake pit? <laughs> That's good. That sounds awesome, right? So uh, there's like a, a 
mosh pit in the center of the track during the Indy 500, which is called the Snake Pit, where you can like party and things in the center. Okay, 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 okay. Wow, wow, wow. Wow. Anyways, this is great and very unique, I would say. So now that we're all settled in and watching the Speedway, what about telling us about a case? Knock our socks off. Absolutely. So we have a 56-year-old male who suffered a STEMI about two weeks ago and had PCI times two to his LED. And this was all done at an outside hospital. And he notes that right after the PCI was performed, he was having this really nagging cough. It was non-productive. It was really, really bothering him. He ended up going to see his PCP. They tried looking through his medication list. They saw he was on lisinopril. They switched him to Losartan, and gosh, he just keeps coughing. They got really desperate looking through his med list. They saw he was on Ticagrelor, which calmly can cause shortness of breath. But they said, you know, maybe this is what's causing his cough. So they ended up switching him from Ticagrelor to Clopidogrel. And just as a last-ditch effort, pulling out all the straws, really seeing if they could try to make his symptoms go away with no avail. They even did some antitussives, and uh, he was still coughing. Now, a couple days later, he starts having nightly fevers. He ends up uh, going uh, by the urging of his PCP to the ER at an outside hospital. Of course, with him having a cough and fever, they screened him for COVID-19 pneumonia twice, and they also checked in his blood cultures, which weren't growing anything. And because of uh, persistent cough and fevers going up to a, about a week, he was even having fevers as high as 104. He eventually came to our hospital at Methodist for uh, further evaluation. The biggest thing that he noted when we went to go see him was he was having a pleuritic type of chest pain. It was uh, much better when he was sitting up. But the, the cough he would describe was uh, really coming from his throat. And he was very adamant saying that he noticed this cough right away, right after the PCI. So, of course, the hospitalist uh, decides to admit him for uh, non-relenting chest pain, cough, and, and, and fever for further workup. His past medical history is hypertension. He's got type 2 diabetic, all of the CAD risk factors you'd expect. His coronary disease was brand new, along with that PCI to his LAD. Heart failure was not a prior diagnosis, but of course, getting his cath, he did get an echocardiogram. And his ejection fraction was found to be newly reduced at uh, 35%. Following discharge, he was put on uh, optical medical therapy, dual antiplatelets, the baby aspirin, he was put on clopidogrel, 75 milligrams, atorvastatin, 80 milligrams, metoprolol, 50 milligrams daily, and loxartan, 25 milligrams. Really, his family history was mostly significant for coronary disease in his mother. Really didn't have a contributory surgical history up until that point, and no known drug allergies that he was aware of. And his uh, social history was uh, pretty unremarkable. Yeah, so I think before we jump in a bit further, Asad, I think it's useful to pause here, uh, just recap a little bit. So, so far we have a 56-year-old male who suffered a STEMI two weeks ago and had two stents placed to his LED. He's now returning with cough, fever, and pleuritic chest pain. Before we delve into the differential, I think it's a good idea to recap what to think about when a post-MI patient presents or kind of in the post-MI period. And I tend to break down complications post-MI into two categories, early and late. So early complications, of course, you know, within the first few hours, we think of ventricular arrhythmias, cardiogenic shock, and then other things like mechanical complications that can occur in the first one to five days. Um, 
papillary muscle rupture, ventricular septal rupture with the hollow systolic murmur, LV free wall rupture. Of course, these are all going to be quite catastrophic and, you know, probably somewhat easily recognizable. So I think some of the more complicated things to recognize are the late complications, which are likely occurring in this case. So I think the primary care doctor and the hospitalist really uh, honed in on medication side effects, which I think was good. Things like cough with lisinopril, which was a new drug for him, ticagrelor, which can present with shortness of breath within a few days, but up to you know a week or two later. Then there's other things to think about, reduced EF due to LV remodeling, which we know now his EF is 35%. And then things like stent thrombosis, which can be early, late, or very late. Doesn't sound like the case here. This sounds more like a pericarditis type picture, which is also a late complication. We talk about things like Dressler syndrome. And then, of course, uh, in this era of COVID, of course, non-cardiac things, anyone with fever, cough, of course, we're going to be thinking about that nowadays. So, Sujoy, that was a great breakdown. And I like the breakdown of early versus late complications. Another way to approach it that just conceptually helps me is just the, the category of the complication. Was there pump failure post-MI with acute and or later on chronic ischemic cardiomyopathy with heart failure? Was there electrical problems, right? So the risk of VTVF, as well as a prolonged risk of sudden cardiac death down the road, especially if the EF is low, as you pointed out. Are there structural problems? So we have all sorts of ruptures, septal rupture, papillary rupture, free wall rupture, but also you can have a ventricular apical aneurysm, which can increase the risk for thromboembolism and or ischemic MR without a papillary muscle rupture. And then the pericardial complications, right? You have early non-inflammatory post-MI pericarditis that tends to resolve with conservative management, and then the late postcardiac injury syndrome pericarditis that's typically immune-mediated. Now, for this patient, one thing that jumps out at me thinking through these possible complications is the pump failure, right? I mean, this guy doesn't have a known history of heart failure antecedent to his MI, but his ejection fraction now is 35%. And just thinking about, you know, there are so many varieties of MI, right? You may have, you know, a tiny MI involving a tiny diagonal branch affecting a small area of myocardium at risk. But then you may have, on the other end of the spectrum, a large MI, left main, the patient is acutely ill and has a really high risk down the road. But I think honing in on this patient, the ejection fraction being 35%, if I'm assuming that this is a consequent to his myocardial infarction that he had two weeks ago, then I don't know right now at this point, I don't know how much of this is scar. I don't know how much of this is stunning and or if there's been chronic ischemic hits that were subclinical, how much of this may be hibernation. So it's, it's unclear to me at this point how much of this ejection fraction is myocardium is salvageable. But the way I'm thinking about this patient is that he's at an advanced risk, right, both for acute complications and long-term complications. So in terms of thinking about him overall, I'm paying attention to every detail here to figure out what's going on with this patient because the risk is going to be very high. And then I also like, you know, you're thinking both in terms of cardiac complications and also non-cardiac complications, right? This guy's two weeks out. Could he have had some sort of nosocomial infection that's manifesting right now? Could this be a pulmonary embolism? He was just admitted to the hospital and now he's having chest pain, but you know, he has a fever as well, right? So is this an infectious or non-infectious etiology? So a lot of things to consider here, but the risk is certainly high. So we're paying attention. Asad, what did we find next in terms of his evaluation? Absolutely. Well, on exam, he was afebrile when we saw him at the time. His blood pressure systolic was 100. A diastolic blood pressure was 69. His heart rate was 89 beats per minute. And he was essentially satting 92% on room air. I think the big thing that sort of jumped out to me on exam was that he seemed fairly compensated. He was euvolemic, did not have pitting edema in his lower extremities. But I think the thing that jumped out to me was on his cardiac exam, 
listening very carefully, he did have a very small friction rub, which even my medical students on the team were able to hear. Granted, it was very subtle, but we all took the time to listen and, and take a good note of it. But it was one thing that sort of kind of jumped out to us on his physical exam. Wow, Asad, that is a very thorough and fantastic evaluation on the physical exam standpoint. And particularly when it comes to friction rubs, those are things that you really have to look for. You, you have to be going in there. And so your differential should include something like pericarditis. And then you can you know, listen for those and pick those up. And I definitely would have loved to be there, as you explained to your medical students and trainees, what it is. But you know, with the physical exam in a patient that's coming in with post-MI, it's just really, really essential as a first building block to start narrowing down on your differential diagnosis, and particularly when you're thinking of mechanical complications in acute MI. And as Amit said, this patient is at risk for that because A, if he had an LED infarct, you know, that's a big anterior MI and has LV dysfunction from that, right? So again, giving us a clue that maybe he was a later presenter. So he's going to be therefore at higher risk for some mechanical complications, particularly like ventricular free wall rupture, uh, papillary rupture, maybe less so if it was an anterior MI, but ventricular pseudoaneurysm and ventricular aneurysms are all part of the differential. And so going through a physical exam in a thorough way, having all of these differentials in mind could be very, very helpful. But would you guys humor me and just teach me a little bit about a friction rub? What is that? And what is the best place to detect that? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. And first off, Asad, very impressed that you picked that up on exam. A pericardial friction rub is typically a triphasic scratching noise that you hear best at the left sternal border. It's often best heard with the diaphragm of the stethoscope. And when present, it's actually highly specific for acute pericarditis. We can switch now to the labs. His white count was 12,000 with the neutrophil predominance, eosinophils were within normal limits, Hemoglobin was 11, and his platelets were 313,000. His electrolytes and kidney function on his BMP were within normal limits. LFTs were all within normal limits as well. His troponin was flat at 0.17 and 0.15. And while the patient was swabbed for COVID two times before coming into the ER, coming in with the fevers he was having with cough, of course, he got a third COVID swab which was negative for a total of three negative COVID-19 swabs. ER also checked inflammatory markers for us, and uh, those were all markedly elevated. His ferritin was 1,096. The CRP was markedly elevated as well at 22. His D-dimer was 959, which was also elevated. And the ESR was markedly elevated as well at 68. I'm happy to take over here, Asad. The chest x-ray was overall pretty unremarkable. The heart size was normal. There was no pulmonary vascular congestion, no pulmonary edema. It was read as no acute cardiopulmonary abnormalities. When we reviewed the EKG, we found that the patient had normal sinus rhythm. The QRS voltage was actually low, and we also found evidence of an anteroceptal infarct, which fits with the known anterior MI the patient had two weeks prior. The QTC also looked prolonged. Of note, when we were reviewing the EKG, things we wanted to make sure we didn't see would be evidence of ST elevation, which could be a sign of instant thrombosis, or even diffuse ST elevations, which may point us more towards acute pericarditis. May I ask, Michelle, so far, we've got evidence of inflammation, 
evidence of at least low-grade cardiac injury with the low-grade troponin elevation. And on the EKG, we see the evidence of prior MI with acuase, but how do you contextualize uh, low voltages on this EKG for this particular patient? Anytime we see low-voltage QRS complex on an EKG, a few things come to mind. One being, could this patient have a pericardial effusion that's contributing to the low voltage? The other thing we think about is, did this patient have such a large myocardial infarction that the scar isn't generating large QRS complexes? The other thing we might think about is an infiltrative process, though in this case, that's not very high on our differential. Yeah, Michelle, I'm so glad you mentioned the infiltrative process. You know, the low voltage, Q waves on the anterior precordial leads. We start thinking about cardiac amyloidosis and other infiltrative processes, right? But those are pseudo Q waves. Here we know this patient had an anterior MI. So, you know, context, of course, is everything. And all these ideologies you're talking about are either low electrical generation or decreased transmission, you know, from the myocardium to the leads, right? And so low electrical generation, we're thinking this patient just had an infarct. Really, is it that much of the muscle that was involved that they're just not generating as much? And then the decreased transmission from the myocardium to the chest, we think, okay, is there a pericardial effusion? So important to think about here with the pericardial friction rub and the pleuritic chest pain that worsens with lying down and the inflammatory markers post-MI. But then also the other reasons could be if you have COPD, right, a lot of like airspace disease, and we don't have a history for that, obesity with a lot of subcutaneous fat, and we don't have a history for that. So you guys are walking us through this case. We're getting data little by little, but it's, it's really helping us build a picture that's very concerning for this patient. What was the next step in the evaluation? So at this point, and you did an excellent job summing it up, but we have a patient who had an anterior MI two weeks ago, now coming in with persistent cough chest discomfort that he feels like is better when he sits up. He's got this friction rub on exam and labs that suggest inflammatory process. At this point, we were certainly concerned for an acute pericarditis picture. Wow. You know, I can't even summarize this case as well as it's already been summarized, but definitely somebody with a post-MI chest pain syndrome that's very pleuritic in nature, inflammatory markers. We're not suspicious as much about mechanical complications as a late presentation for this patient. We're really, really focused on this pericardium. We've identified this friction rub. This is smelling like pericarditis. So I know, Michelle, you're very passionate about this subject. Would you teach us a little bit about pericarditis in this post-MI setting? Of course, I'm happy to. Acute pericarditis is actually the most common disorder of the pericardium and refers to inflammation of the pericardial sac itself. In most cases of pericarditis in developed countries, etiology is actually often idiopathic or viral. There are certain typical features that we think of when it comes to acute pericarditis, and I'll go through some of those here. One being the classic chest pain story. So patients typically describe this sharp, pleuritic pain that is improved by sitting up and leaning forward. This is actually because when we sit up and lean forward, we reduce pressure on the parietal pericardium. And this finding is actually seen in 95% of cases of acute pericarditis. We also talked about the pericardial friction rub earlier, and when it is present, as I mentioned, it's highly specific for acute pericarditis. The other thing we probably all remember from medical school is the classic EKG changes. I know we all think about diffuse ST elevations as the marker for acute pericarditis, but there are some other things you might see as well. Again, we can see those concave ST elevations, but we also might see reciprocal ST depressions in leads AVR and V1. We also might see PR depression in the limb leads with PR elevation and AVR. 
This actually ref reflects an atrial current of injury. What we should know, however, that over time, these ST segments may normalize, and in up to 40% of cases of acute pericarditis, we may not see these classic findings. And kind of the last thing we think about is the presence of a pericardial effusion on imaging. And typically, as cardiologists, we all like to see that with a transthoracic echo. We can actually diagnose acute pericarditis if two of those four things are present. But there are other things that might actually push us towards that diagnosis. Things like evidence of systemic inflammation with elevated inflammatory markers, which we see in this case, or even evidence of pericardial inflammation on more advanced imaging like CT or MRI. That was a great overview, Michelle. Uh, what do you think about this uh, troponin, though, in this case as well? So you're right. We did have this mild elevation of troponin in this case. When present, this often reflects more of myocardial inflammation. And sometimes we think about these patients maybe having a myopericarditis picture. Myocarditis, again, reflects the inflammation of the myocardium itself. Patients with acute myocarditis, in contrast to acute pericarditis, often have a much more variable presentation. They typically present with clinical symptoms of heart failure, and for it to be acute, we say that they have to arise over a period of less than three months. These patients may present much sicker than patients with acute pericarditis. They may have things like ventricular arrhythmia, complete heart block, or even cardiogenic shock. Determining the etiology of myocarditis in this case is often much more important because it will affect and can affect treatment course. Our patient's presentation was less concerning for a myocarditis picture, but in our current global pandemic, something to certainly think about, especially with all the COVID. Uh, that was great, Michelle. Uh, why don't we go into some of the other diagnostics, advanced diagnostics that were done for this patient? So they did a CT chest with IV contrast while the patient was still in the emergency room. They did find a moderately sized pericardial effusion with enhancement of the pericardium that they noted was worrisome for infectious or inflammatory pericarditis. We also found there to be several enlarged mediastinal lymph nodes that we felt were reactive. Of note, the patient also had a CT at the outside hospital prior to the presentation here that was negative for a PE. I just had a quick question, and not to derail us, but does anybody know, and if, if you have, like, so this guy basically has these ST elevations, they're subtle even now, but associated with the Q wave, so it's very clear with the you know, infarct. But I was wondering, like, looking for other signs of pericarditis on the ECG, which he doesn't really have, like, I wonder how that interacts. Like, if you already have ST elevations anteriorly from a, a vascular territory, does that change the way Dressler syndrome would present ECG-wise, you know, because it also obviously affects the ST segment? So um, the EKG for post-pericardiotomy syndrome, which is like Dressler, but obviously post-surgery, can be very difficult to interpret, right? Because you're going to have signs that are hidden among persistent ST elevation from a variety of causes, other nonspecific ST changes, post-revascularization, Q waves, etc. And so for diagnosing post-cardiac injury syndrome, EKG actually isn't on the diagnostic criteria. So we have a lot of things going for pericardial disease at this point, including an effusion that we notice on CT chest. But I think we really need a window into the heart here. What did the echo find? Absolutely. Let's go through the echocardiogram that the patient had in the emergency room. The patient's left ventricular ejection fraction was still reduced around 38%. There was anterior wall hypokinesis, which fits with the LAD distribution myocardial infarction we know the patient had several weeks earlier. We did see evidence of a small pericardial effusion, and it actually looked that the pericardium was brighter than normal. 
Interestingly, we also found a left ventricular apical thrombus measuring about 1.2 by 1.5 centimeters, as well as a dilated inferior vena cava. Of note, there was no significant valvular abnormalities noted on the echo. That was a great review of the diagnostics, Michelle. Uh, just to note that that echocardiogram was done urgently in the emergency room when the patient presented. And I think that's very appropriate when we're thinking about post-MI complications, mechanical or uh, you know, late complications like pericarditis in this case. I think it's useful to pause for a moment, though, and just review some of the uh, imaging modalities that we can utilize to look for pericarditis and pericardial effusions. I think, as Michelle mentioned earlier, though, one thing to, to note is that pericarditis is a clinical diagnosis based on the patient's presenting symptoms, the ECG, chest x-ray, maybe inflammatory markers. You can make that diagnosis without further imaging. And perhaps in some uncomplicated cases, maybe idiopathic or viral, you can even just treat up front with NSAIDs. However, as in this case, when there's concern for post-MI complications or a little more complicated course, I think most of us would do further imaging. And the echocardiography is often the initial modality of choice we use to look at pericardial disease and pericardial effusions. And we can use it to assess hemodynamics, which we won't cover here. It's been covered in many previous CardioNerds episodes. But there are other new emerging modalities for evaluating the pericardium. I think in more complicated cases where you're concerned about associated diseases like malignancy and things like that, cardiac CT can help with that. If you're worried about looking specifically for recurrent or chronic pericarditis and you're looking to evaluate inflammation, cardiac MRI can be useful. And then certainly if you're worried about trauma and things like penetrating injuries, CT and MRI are useful to evaluate other structures that are involved. Sujoy, thanks for highlighting this is really a clinical diagnosis. And stepping back, post-MI pericarditis is a form of post-cardiac injury syndrome. And post-cardiac injury syndrome, we think about three main categories, right? As in this case is post-MI pericarditis. Um, another uh, very common thing we come across all the time, probably more commonly than post-MI pericarditis in the reperfusion era. The number two is post-pericardiotomy syndrome after some sort of cardiac surgery or other thoracic surgery where they enter the pericardium. And number three is post-traumatic syndromes, right? And that could be either accidental trauma or things that, again, we see more often in cardiology is really following any percutaneous procedure involving the heart, right? Post-PCI, post-lead insertion, post-RF ablation, and those kinds of things. Now, the diagnosis really hinges on clinical parameters, like you said. And from the guidelines, you just have to have two of five possible manifestations. One is unexplained fever. And our patient had a very high fever, right? Above 104 degrees Fahrenheit without other explained ideology. Number two is a pleuritic or a pericarditic chest pain, which our patient had as well. Number three is a rub, which could be either a pleural rub or a pericardial rub, which our patient had also. Number four is a pericardial effusion, which our patient had. And number five is a pleural effusion with associated CRP elevation. Now, this is a little bit different from the clinical criteria for diagnosing other forms of acute pericarditis, where you need to have two of four options the pleuritic chest pain, pericardial rub, EKG changes, and pericardial effusion. And I think the difference there is to highlight with the post-cardiac injury syndromes, it's really more of a diffuse serositis and can more commonly have pulmonary involvement with pleuritis and or even pulmonary infiltrates, which I learned only recently. 
And the reason I think it's predominantly clinical is because, you know, with guidelines, you need to be able to extrapolate to areas that maybe don't have advanced multimodality imaging available. But in centers like Indiana University, where you do then adjunctive and supportive features from things like cardiac MRI, inflammatory markers, et cetera, can be very useful. So I think here, our patient solidly fits the diagnosis of post-cardiac injury syndrome in the context of a recent myocardial infarction. But now that we've made the diagnosis, we found an LV thrombus, how did you guys approach management? What happened with the patient afterwards? Once we had all the data available, we went to the patient bedside. We talked to the patient and we talked to his wife and we were updating them of the results. And we really needed to do a patient shared decision-making discussion because at this point, uh, we were going to want to treat the LV thrombus appropriately with warfarin. We wanted to also have the patient on his clopidogrel with recent two stents to his LAD. And of course, we wanted to treat his Dressler syndrome or post-infarct pericarditis with high-dose aspirin. And we made the decision as well to tag on a PPI for stress ulcer prophylaxis. Interestingly, after a couple of days of trying out this treatment and talking to the patients about the risk benefits of of being on such a regimen, such as concerns for bleeding, he did quite well. His cough improved significantly within 48 hours. What we decided to do was to be extra careful and get a repeat echocardiogram. And that specifically was to take a look at the pericardial effusion with the concern that there could potentially be a theoretical risk for hemorrhagic conversion, especially with a patient not being just on traditional triple therapy, but being on one with included in a high-dose aspirin. And overall, the effusion looked unchanged. Uh, If there's different doses available of how you could sort of uh, treat a patient in this clinical situation, what we decided to do was use high-dose aspirin, 650 milligrams, Q6 hours, And we uh, told the patient to continue on with this regimen up until he was still having symptoms. So upon symptom improval, uh, we had him stop the high dose of aspirin and go back down to a regular baby aspirin, 81 milligrams, to reduce his risk of bleeding while being on triple therapy. Yeah, this is a really challenging clinical place to be because on the one hand, you have a patient that's coming to you and that's in very much in pain and you really have identified the etiology of the pain and it's a inflammatory pain and it's a pericarditis pain, which you know should respond to NSAIDs or anti-inflammatory medications, including aspirin. But on the other hand, he's got this clot, right? The clot is there and very uncomfortable to leave that untreated as well. So triple therapy is going to be the way to go, but he is at particular risk for hemorrhagic conversion. So you kind of really have to weigh the risks and benefits and really have a good discussion with the patient and just really hope for the best. So I appreciate the challenging clinical position. This is very challenging, right? Because traditionally, our indication for dual antiplatelet therapy is a recent percutaneous coronary intervention using drug-looting stents in the LAD, an important area. And the indication for anticoagulation with warfarin is the LV thrombus, also a very important indication. And typically, if you only have those two indications, you can peel off that aspirin fairly rapidly and continue in the longer term, continue just the clopidogrel or other P2I12 inhibitor with a warfarin. But here, we have the additional indication for high-dose aspirin as anti-inflammatory therapy for pericarditis. And you know what's causing this pericarditis? We know that this is predominantly an immune-mediated phenomenon, right? One, because there's typically a latency period like this patient had, 
Two, there's an association with anti-cardiac antibodies, like antimyosin. And three, they tend to respond with anti-inflammatory therapy. So this is probably an immune-mediated phenomenon, but as an immune-mediated phenomenon, there is risk for recurrence. And so our eagerness to taper the high-dose aspirin or other anti-inflammatory therapy is lower, right? Like we want to continue it longer term. And oftentimes, continue it longer term and taper, make dose adjustments based on signs and symptoms, including anti-inflammatory markers, plus or minus inflammation on MRI if this is more recalcitrant. So let me ask you guys, with a concern for bleeding, concern for possible risk for hemorrhagic conversion, was there a discussion about potentially adding another anti-inflammatory therapy that could help you get off of the aspirin sooner, like colchicine? Absolutely. In, in fact, uh, we added uh, colchicine uh, the next day after we started uh, triple therapy using uh, high-dose aspirin. Yeah, that was a great, uh, great question, Amit. Colchicine is um, very useful in this patient population. There's been uh, a few studies that have come out recently that support this, uh, notably COPS and COPS-2. I think the COPS trial was cardiac surgery patients who were randomly assigned on post-operative day three to receive colchicine versus placebo after pericardial injury from the surgery. And colchicine significantly reduced the primary endpoint of post-pericardiotomy syndrome in these patients at 12 months. And COPS-2 was a follow-up trial on that, which showed that giving colchicine up front before cardiac surgery, 48 to 72 hours before cardiac surgery, significantly reduced the primary endpoint of post-pericardiotomy syndrome at three months. So I think in any case where we're worried about post-pericardial injury syndrome, colchicine is a useful adjunct. And there's even data now uh, in the MI literature. The Colcott trial showed that in post-MI patients, the addition of colchicine within 30 days reduce the risk of cardiovascular death, cardiovascular arrest, MI, stroke, or urgent revascularization. And so certainly this patient would fall into that category. And especially with the diagnosis of pericarditis, I think the addition of colchicine definitely warranted based on these studies. That's phenomenal, guys. How did the patient do with triple therapy, including high-dose aspirin, as well as colchicine as an adjunct to treat post-MI pericarditis? The, the patient did quite well. In fact, uh, within um, 48 hours of initiating triple therapy with high-dose aspirin and with addition of colchicine, the patient was already reporting an improvement in his uh, cough within 48 hours of, of treatment and uh, was feeling quite well. And this was even after we obtained a repeat echocardiogram to ensure no hemorrhagic conversion of his small pericardial effusion. One of the things that I took away from this case was what is even the evidence for using high-dose aspirin and where does this evidence even come from? So looking at the ACC-AHA guidelines uh, post-STEMI, uh, high-dose aspirin for uh, post-infarct pericarditis is a class 1B indication. And in fact, the, the case series that actually looked to answer this question was quite small and it was a study from 1981. This was just only 24 patients. And they were looking at patients that had symptomatic post-infarct pericarditis. And with these 24 patients, they were split from the middle. There were 12 patients on high-dose aspirin and uh, 12 patients on endomethacin. And essentially what they found was the high-dose aspirin was just as efficacious as the endomethacin. And the bleeding risk is the same. But really, it's this uh, small series which the guidelines uh, reference for us to take a look at for the primary evidence for why we even use high-dose aspirin with the hope of trying to avoid NSAIDs in patients that have uh, myocardial infarction and with the theoretical concerns of using NSAIDs in such a, a high-risk patient population. The next big thing that we really wanted to look at and something that I was quite curious about was uh, 
well, what are our options talking to this patient about not treating Stressler syndrome? Could we just let it go and uh, not do anything at all? Because I think the big thing that a lot of us can sort of see is that uh, this was a pretty atypical type of regimen to be on uh, triple therapy with uh, high-dose aspirin. In fact, this isn't even talked about in the guidelines. So looking back at a case series from 2009, they looked at a fairly large series of uh, more than 700 patients that had recent myocardial infarction. And uh, in the series, there was uh, 712 patients that did not have post-MI pericarditis, and there were just 31% that had post-MI pericarditis. So they wanted to follow these patients over time and look to see what are the complications of not doing any treatment. And uh, interestingly, with the 31 patients that did have post-semi-pericarditis and they didn't get treatment, 0% uh, had the outcome of constrictive pericarditis, which was the overall feared complication of not doing treatment. Now, there was 3.2% uh, uh, that did have recurrent pericarditis. And uh, another associated feature that they saw in this specific patient group was uh, about 77% of these patients had uh, pericardial effusion. So this was the big thing that we wanted to kind of arm ourselves with when uh, talking to our patient to, uh, you know, really give him the, the full spectrum of uh, what to expect and, uh, you know, whether or not, uh, what are the, the benefits of even pursuing this treatment. And I, I think specifically for him, being as symptomatic as he was, uh, being as desperate as he felt, he was all in uh, of going forward and, and, and getting treatment and uh, overall did quite well. Asad, thank you for highlighting, you know, the importance of listening to our patients, right? I mean, maybe data, and, and I would say, thankfully, the risk of constrictive pericarditis seems quite low in this population, but I've got a close friend who developed post-pericardiotomy syndrome and living with pericarditis, this excruciating chest pain that gets worse with exertion as your heart rate goes up can be extremely lifestyle limiting. It's important to think about heart endpoints, mortality, constriction, things that we can objectively assess. But the importance of improving symptoms and lifestyle, at least for our patients, is extremely important. So I'm glad that you guys treated this patient with great medical therapy and he's doing well. So congratulations. Yeah, thanks. In, in fact, we just wanted to do everything we could to minimize this patient's risk and to have them have the best outcome possible. Hey, Michelle, do you mind talking about what is the sort of kind of the best regimen or latest we have out there? Absolutely. Current guidelines when we're talking about triple therapy and the setting of a recent MI and need for anticoagulation for things like LV thrombus or atrial fibrillation recommend limiting as best we can the duration of triple therapy. And often when we're thinking about these patients, we're thinking about what their bleeding risk is and what their risk for thrombosis is. And in most instances, we want to limit as best we can dual antiplatelet therapy and sometimes even just do a P2Y12 inhibitor with an oral anticoagulant alone, dropping the aspirin altogether. What we do know, though, is that clopidogrel has become the P2Y12 receptor inhibitor of choice and was used in most of our studies looking at triple therapy. And with patients that are on warfarin, we often shoot for a lower target INR, often between 2 to 2.5. But again, as Asad pointed out, it's so important in these patients that we're having patient shared decision making so that they really understand the risk of being on triple therapy in this instance. Our patient situation was, of course, more complex than this. He was having excruciating chest pain, so keeping that aspirin on at a high dose was very important in this instance. And certainly he needed the clopidogrel with the recent MI, but also had this LV thrombus that we needed to treat with warfarin. Again, highlighting how important patient-centered 
decision making was in this case. Yeah, Michelle, I can totally appreciate that. And also recognizing that the decreasing the dose of aspirin, even, you know, from a TID regimen to a BID regimen could be picked up by the patient almost instantaneously. So they are very responsive to these anti-inflammatory medications. And when the dose is reduced, they sense that because as we know, aspirin at higher doses is anti-inflammatory. But as we go back to the, you know, traditional baby aspirin of 81 milligrams, it's more of an anti-thrombotic therapy rather than an anti-inflammatory therapy. So I could see why this is a something that needs to be really monitored long-term and titrated accordingly for the patient, really tailor-made for the patient. I think some pearls that I, I got from this case, uh, seeing this patient, is that initially the thought is that, you know, Dressler syndrome in the post-PCI era is thought to be uh, not so common. But I think that uh, one thing I think I think all of us can sort of appreciate is that in this, uh, you know, pandemic, and I'm hoping we're towards the tail end of it now, is that uh, we're just seeing more and more patients that are uh, staying at home. They are ignoring symptoms, chalking up chest pain to heartburn. And they're coming in later and later to the hospital and coming in with these uh, late myocardial infarctions. And I think that uh, because of that, now we're you know seeing things that uh, are disease processes that we haven't seen before in the past. But uh, specifically with Dressler syndrome, you know, I think the presentation is that uh, you know we read about it and we learn about it as early as uh, medical school. But I, I can't say that I've seen one of these cases before uh, during my uh, training specifically with his presentation as well, uh, with having the cough and fever, that's really not something that uh, is really talked about when you're first starting to learn about what this even looks, feels, and, and smells like when we talk about uh, Dressler syndrome or post-infarct myocardial infarction. In fact, I talked this case over with uh, one of our senior attendings who, of course, trained in the pre-PCI era, and uh, talking to him about post-infarct myocarditis about this patient's presentation, uh, he was not surprised at all that they were having a fever and a cough. And in fact, that often was what they saw in these patients. So I think it's very important uh, when you're seeing this specific patient population just to be overall aware of the spectrum of this disease and to really avoid anchoring bias. I mean, this is a patient that was swabbed for COVID-19 pneumonia three times. And I think, uh, you know, if you think about it, uh, if this person's coming to see you in cardiology clinic, I think if they're going to complain about uh, having cough and fever, I think it's very common reflex for us to, in cardiology clinic to say, well, you know, I think you should maybe see your PCP and get further workup. But I think sort of trying to avoid the anchoring bias, really trying to look at the whole picture. This is someone that had a recent myocardial infarction and just being aware that, hey, you know, this could be post-infarct pericarditis. Specifically in our patient, I have to say the uh, echocardiogram was a uh, kind of one of the pieces that actually got us involved to see this patient in the first place because the hospitalist had noted to both on the CT of uh, the pericardial effusion. And uh, we were called to take a look at the echocardiogram. But uh, one thing I can tell you, at least from IU, we work with uh, Dr. Harvey Feigenbaum all the time, and he gives his uh, weekly echo conferences. And uh, Dr. Feigenbaum, as you all know, is the you know father of, of echocardiography here in the United States. Uh, you know, he made the point when we discussed this case with him that uh, increased whiteness that we saw on the echocardiogram is you know, quite helpful because uh, that was really fitting with what we saw with this uh, presentation with the elevated inflammatory markers. So I think overall, the big points of this case, the reason why we wanted to share this with everybody and, and get to meet you guys on this podcast, which is we're really happy to, that you have us here, is that the, it's really important to really talk with your patients, uh, sit them down, get a really good story and uh, really do your part to try to give the best care possible. 
Wow, Assad, these are fantastic points. And Sujay, Michelle, welcome, welcome to the Cardio Nerds family and welcome to the Cardio Nerds Healy Honor Roll and welcome to the University of Indiana. We talked about a patient who came in with shortness of breath and ultimately fevers and an inflammatory milieu post-MI. We avoided anchor bias by being very thorough and thought out in a patient that's post-MI, in, in a patient presenting with post-MI, thinking about mechanical complications and as well as other complications of MI, which ended up in our case being Dressler syndrome as the diagnosis that fits this patient the best. But we also thought about non-cardiac etiologies, given that the patient had a recent hospitalization. So I just love the fact that we were able to walk through this case, narrowing down the differential diagnosis as we went along, using the modalities of choice to clinch the diagnosis, and then also discussing the complex and complicated medical management of this patient, given the risk and balance of antithrombotic, but also bleeding risks, which really become a big cornerstone question with so much in cardiology. So again, Asad, Sujoy, Michelle, welcome to the show. And thank you so much for joining us and presenting such an important case. Thank you so much, Amit and Dan. This was a lot of fun. We really appreciate you guys having us on and big kudos to Asad, our first year fellow who had this case and provide excellent care and took the time to share it with us so we could all learn together. Hopefully post-pandemic, uh, we can get you guys to uh, come to Indianapolis. It's a, a big basketball town and the Big Ten is here and you know, it's uh, always great getting to meet Cofells. Oh, you better count on it. We'll be there. Yeah, I want you to throw me into the snake pit. That sounds like uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not, not a literal snake pit, the party pit. I know. I know. They throw me in the party pit, the mosh pit, whatever it is. If, as long as you, if you can lift me, you can throw me. <laughs> uh, Dan, you want to end it there? Give no, me. I don't want to end this ever. <laughs> Hold on. And now we would like to welcome one of our staff physicians, Dr. Julie Clary, for the ECPR segment of this episode. Dr. Clary is one of our preventative medicine cardiologists and actually has a focus in advanced lipid management. Thank you so much for inviting me to be the expert faculty for this case. Again, my name is Dr. Julie Clary. I'm a general cardiologist here at Indiana University with a special interest in lipidology. I run our cardiovascular disease and advanced lipid clinic at Indiana University. Additionally, I serve as one of the associate program directors for the IU Cardiology Fellowship and as the associate service line leader for cardiology with IU Health. I was the attending on service when this patient presented. I just want to say that was a great discussion on a very complicated case, and I really don't have much more to add. You all did such a great job. But to summarize... This was a patient who presented two weeks after a myocardial infarction with the clinical picture of pericarditis and laboratory data that supported Dressler's syndrome. As they discussed, Dressler's syndrome is an autoimmune inflammatory response in the pericardium post-cardiac injury and is often associated with a myocardial infarction. It's being seen a lot less now in the PCI era, but interestingly, as Assad pointed out, it seems to have popped up more frequently in the COVID area as patients are sometimes presenting later after their myocardial infarctions. They're trying to wait it out at home. So treatment in the post-MI period for Dressler syndrome is typically with high-dose aspirin. This case, though, was complicated by the fact that the patient also had an LV thrombus in addition to their fresh stents. The therapy for an LV thrombus is with warfarin. So then in addition, the patient needed uh, triple therapy with aspirin, clopidogrel, and the warfarin 
sometimes in these patients, if they just presented with an LV thrombus and the fresh stents after a myocardial infarction, we might manage them with just a double therapy. So they would get clopidogrel and warfarin. However, in this patient, since he also had Dressler's syndrome, he had a very strong indication for high-dose aspirin. So we felt that all three therapies were warranted for him. Therefore, this case really didn't fit into any of the guidelines. So I think it's important to highlight that when you get into a case like this, where you're doing something out of the ordinary, it's useful to do two things. Number one, confer with your colleagues. Again, I was the faculty, but I'm not the most senior faculty around here at Indiana University. So I went to my mentor, Dr. Kovacs, and asked him what he thought I should do. And he said, well, you know, the patient has a strong indication for all three, just as we've discussed. And so what we did was we took it back to the patient and his wife to really explain where we were and what the condition was and stressed how important it was for him to be on all three therapies and also gave him the information to know about potential side effects. And so we really engaged the patient in shared decision-making and involved him in his care. Again, this was a great presentation, and thank you all for allowing me to participate. It's like, and the transfer, just because the audience is picking their celery, you know, oh, I hate celery, picking their cucumbers out from the you know, <laughs> grocery, and they got to gotta keep them focused. Are cucumbers that much better than celery? I hate celery. I like it's the one thing that I can never. Um, I can never. You just need a better dipping sauce. You know, celery with like peanut butter is great. It's just the aftertaste gets me every time. 